Uh, my name's Clint and this is my story. Looking back at my life, um, I was just so broken and, and so, so lost. Came from a broken home, lots of violence, lots of abuse, mentally, emotionally, and um, just really grew up scared and, and afraid and not really knowing my place in, in this world. At the age of nine, started drinking, started drugs at 12. And um, yeah, it just led me in a path uh, of almost no return. I didn't know where that path would, would lead me. And ended up in a cycle of addiction, addicted to heroin, crystal meth for 20 years. 20 rehabs, jails, prisons. Um, yeah, and just lost my way you know, with that false identity, not knowing my purpose, not knowing who I was. But um, down the road, that thing turned on me and then I, I had to start doing things to support my drug addiction and, and turn to crime. Yeah, it just took me down to a very, very, very dark place, you know, where I attempted suicide many times. I just wanted to die because I thought that was the way out. I thought this is what I was created to be, a, a junkie. I ended up homeless on the street. My family didn't want anything to do with me. Ended up sleeping in a graveyard, which is, looking back now, it's quite significant because that's where I was. I was spiritually, emotionally just dead. I was just in torment. I almost came to the end of myself, you know, I was so, so worn down emotionally, mentally, I just didn't have anything left in me, you know, and I remember when I met my wife, we just got married and I was on this path, I was plugged in and yeah, the rug got pulled out underneath me and I ended up in rehab and I'd just been married and I'd been clean for a long time and I was in a total place of torment and I was busy reading the book of John and um, you know about that paralytic that was at the pool at Bethesda and he was there for 35 years Jesus said to him like do you want to be healed and I just feel like him felt like him saying that to me do you want to be healed and I was like yes I want to be healed I want to be healed and he's like okay well pick up your mat and walk so I said God what is what is my mat and he says, it's my word. Pick up my word and walk. And I left, you know, and I, I've never picked up a drug since. What changed is I went from feeling worthless to experiencing God's love. He's just always been there. He's always just had his hand over my life and I'm just sitting here because of God's grace and his mercy. I've got my beautiful wife Menorah, my little waist Willow Grace, you know, um, my dad and, and I just look at my life, you know, I'm a functional member, you know, I'm working, I'm employed. It's just the night and day difference that God's done in my life. And it's been hard. It's been a hard journey, pushing through. You know, the Israelites, when they came out of slavery, they went through a desert. When you're in a desert, it's hot. You're thirsty, you're hungry, 
you want to complain, you want to whine, but you push through, eh? you push through and you stand on God's word and you keep your focus on him. You don't look at the circumstances, you don't look at your feelings, you look at him and you just keep on going, keep on pushing through, keep on going through. And then all of a sudden, you look back, you were in a graveyard, and now you've got a house, <laughs> you've got a family, you've got a beautiful girl. And I'm like, wow, God, what, what have you done? What have you done here? You know? And it's just, you know, I'm just so grateful. So undeserved, but just so grateful to God. You know, I'm like, God, why do you love me so much? Why do you show me so much favor? I, I don't know. It's just because he is God. He is love. My name is Clint. I was dead, but now I'm alive. My name is Gabe Phillips. If we have not met, I get to be one of the pastors on team here at Life Changes. Married to a beautiful lady named Fiona. Two little kids, Olivia Grace and Benjamin Asher, who is almost two. And we are praying. We are praying that God can turn graves into gardens, that he'll turn terrible twos into terrific twos. Do I have a witness in the house today? Do I have a witness? Amen. Preach it, brother. I receive. But it's really good to be together. And uh, I, really want, I really do. We have such a designer heart. We really believe that we serve a miracle working God. He's not dead. He is alive. The cross embraced. The grave denied. Come on. That's the, that's the centerpiece of our faith. And I want to say, maybe you're here today. And maybe you've, maybe you've been dragged here. And you're, just, you're here and you're feeling down and out. Feeling out of, out of the loop. Out of hope. Out of, out of favor, out of blessing, out of, out of God's grace. Or maybe you've even been here for a long time. You came willingly, but behind the mask, behind the sanitizing of hands and the smile, you're feeling out. You're just feeling out of sync, out of, out of God's presence. I want to tell you today that God takes the things that are out and He brings them in. And He's wanting to do it. That's the message of resurrection life today, is that He wants to bring you home. So I'm really excited about that today. I'm really excited. And I, I, want, I don't know how much time you've got, but uh, maybe if you cancel your lunch plans, we're going to go long. We're going to go long today, guys. You know what? There's no other service after this. We, I'm just joking. Relax, everybody. Relax, relax, relax. Wayne has already baited you with hot chocolate, so we'll get there. But I want to start uh, in Genesis chapter 3. starts off in this, 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 this sadness where Adam and Eve, the prototype male and female, have pulled themselves out of paradise pull themselves out of God's pleasure, His design, His purposes, and they've settled for something small, insignificant, and trite. They took the bait, they took the, 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 the fruit, the temptation of the enemy, that wily serpent who, who took them astray from God's delight and peace and joy and life, and they traded it for something small, and in response to that, they, they ushered in the curse upon humanity. And man was driven out of the Garden of Eden, and then they were driven into the wilderness on the outside looking in. At a memory distant, dim, dimly lit, and, and God to secure the, the holy place, secure this place of beauty and, and perfect love and joy and peace. He stations two angels at the gate. The gate to Eden says, sorry guys, you're out in the wilderness, you're on the outs. And he sets into motion this, this process. Sin sets into motion this process of us going further than we first thought. It always seems much smaller at the beginning, but in few years down the line, a few clicks too many, a few deals too many, too, too many messages replied to you that you shouldn't have, and, and you get too many conversations, had too many emotions pent up and not expressed, and you suddenly look back and say, how did I get this far out? 
of God's favor, out of God's providence, out of God's design. And that happened to the Israelite nation as Adam and Eve went out and you flick a few pages and keep reading the story of the Israelite nation is that they find themselves from that one sin, they find themselves in rebellion and, and sin and they get, end up in Egypt, in captivity. And then in Egypt, in captivity, God, though, is so kind and merciful, even in their sin, He comes after them, because He sends a deliverer to lead them back to the purposes of God, back to the pleasures of God. And He takes them out of Egypt and says, let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. And they find themselves in the wilderness again. But in the wilderness this time, God has set up a mechanism, a structure, a, a way for the people of God to draw near to God to draw near to His presence and His goodness. And it's this thing called the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, that God gives Moses the designs in Exodus 25 and 37. If you want to go read it a little bit later, the specific designs, and it's this image that's on the screen behind me, this, this design, but it was this elaborate tent, this elaborate uh, setup that had white tents that were going all the way around that were in such stark contrast to the, the black tents that they lived in in the wilderness and the, and the sand and the dust, this white tent that beckoned them, that there was still some hope even though they were still on the outs looking in, there was a glimmer of hope. And what would happen in the story was once a year on the Day of Atonement, around about this time every year, the people of God remember the Passover, remember their being set free out of Egypt. And what they would do in the wilderness, and they do still to this day, they designated a high priest. There was a high priest, one man, in place of the people. The people would stay outside of the structure. But one man would go in and enter that gate, my right, your left. And he'd walk in wearing, uh, holding a, one lamb in his arms, a pure, spotless, blemish-free lamb. This lamb that was raised, was reared for this purpose, to die as a sacrifice for the many. And he'd walk in with this lamb in his arms and another goat, another lamb on, his, on a leash next to him. And he would walk and he would approach the altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar. And he'll get there. And what he'll do is he'll kill that animal, slit that, the throat of the first goat, the first lamb, and he'll spill that blood over the altar of sacrifice in an attempt to say, God, we're shedding blood to repent of our nation's sins. From that process, he'll go and he'll get to the basin or the laver and he'll take off his high priestly garments and he'll start to wash himself with this water that contained this labor. He would wash himself, wash his body, not as a ritualistic ceremony just to get done. No, no, this had to be effective, had to remove all dust and, and blemish, had to make sure that there was, he was spotless before he could proceed with this journey inwards. And then what he'll do is he'll walk through that door, the curtain that separated the outer courts with the holy place, and he'll walk into the holy place, and the holy place had three big things in them. The first thing was this lampstand, and it was in this place, from this a place going inwards, that was the only light that was available. It was from that lamp. That, that, those, that oil lamp would keep on burning, and that was the only light that was able for him to, as his eyes would get used to it, would focus on the, what was going on. And he would walk in. There's not just the lampstand. There's also the table of showbread, which had 12 freshly baked loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel there. And there was this altar of incense, as you can see there. We'd walk in, and he'd burn incense and offer prayers, asking for God's forgiveness on behalf of the people. One man going in. And then he'll get to this place, the, the final curtain, the veil that separated the holy place with the holy of holies, where they understood that that's where God's presence would reside if he, if he accepted their sacrifice. But it was such a holy place. And that's why the process was so laborious that they had to send the high priest had to have no sin in his heart. He would make sure, I can imagine him trembling before that veil, confessing sins and, and saying things that maybe confessing friends' sins. And the, the, I need to make sure I'm, I'm free of this stuff if I'm going to go in here. Because actually, if people went in there, 
without a purity of heart and without going through this process, they would drop down dead in the presence of God's holiness. So much so that they had created a mechanism where they had tied a rope around the high priest's leg and with a bell on it. So as he would go in, the bell would, would, would jangle and make a noise all the way into the, in the, in the place. And if that bell stopped making a noise, the people know he's not coming out alive. And no one's there, not drawing straws, so who's going to go get him? Like, uh-uh. I know what you did last night. No, I'm not going in there. So that's why they rope, to pull that guy out. That's how, how real this moment was. And the high priest, though, would go and rope around his leg, bell jangling, would get there, nerves jangling, I can imagine. He gets there, and he comes face to face with the Ark of the Covenant. And it's in this, the inside of it was mementos of their journey to remind them of their journey from slavery to freedom, Aaron's rod that led them out. There was a, a pot of manna, and there was the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words of God to humanity, and, and His way, the way to freedom. But on top, more significantly for us, was this, this design at the top. It was two angels positioned over, overlooking the centerpiece of it, which was called the mercy seat. Now, there was no seat there in any literal shape or form. It was just an empty space. But it was the name they called it because they were on that place, on that altar of, sac- of, of, of bringing the, the blood that they had shed at the brazen altar, that blood would have been carried through and would be sprinkled on that mercy seat. If God forgave them of their sins, his presence would fall. And then the high priest would be able to leave outwardsly and get to the, the, the outward gate, release that scapegoat, the last goat that he brought in with him, called the scapegoat, where we get our English word scapegoat, the one who takes the fall for the many. And he'll drive that out past the people into the east, into the wilderness. It will go far away into the wilderness. And that's why David would pray, you have removed my sins as far as the east is from the west. Because he would say, we've gone in that far and we've come out and God's pleased with us so we can drive out the goats into the wilderness to die. And there was this process that they did. Now, I know a lot of you are probably asking yourselves, thank you for the history lesson. What has that got to do with me in my Instagram, Twitter feed, Facebook, LinkedIn for those older generation? What has that got to do with us? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking. I love having a conversation with you, 10 a.m. table. It's really good to chat. But I want to tell you it has huge ramifications because in John chapter 1, we find the author John starts to write a new story or to take the story to new places it hasn't, no one's ever dreamt it would go. The gospel of John starts with three words, in the beginning. Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to know that those three words have appeared somewhere else before. Page one, actually, of the Bible, Genesis one starts with those exact three words, in the beginning. And John is not just doing that callously, he's not just doing, ah, let's throw some words out, let me, this is how we start a story once upon a time. No, no, no. He's using these words deeply and significantly because what he is saying is he's saying that I'm rewriting and reframing what you know of God. I'm going to show you something here today. And I want you to lean in life changes because I believe God wants to speak to us. Because I say when he, when he says in the beginning, maybe you feel you're at your end. You feel at the end of that relationship. You're at the end of your hope, the end of your finances, the end of the CV list that has gone out. You say, I've got nothing left. I want to say to you, at your end is his starting point. He's just beginning. He's just getting started right now. And that's what John says. John says, in the beginning, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It's so huge. You mustn't miss this, because actually what John is doing, where the whole way through the Bible up to this point, we've been working from an outside-in reality. He starts on the inside and starts working out. He starts in the very presence of God and says, the Word was with God. He's reverse engineering the whole process in front of our very eyes. You see it, it comes up, climaxes in John 1 verse 14. He puts all his cards on the table when he says this, and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. He's saying who? The word Jesus became, took on flesh and dwelt among us. The message translation said it moved into the neighborhood. But the best rendition of that word is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Something's on the go here. Something's on the go. Hebrews tells us actually, and that, that word, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20 says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. There's allusions here to something deeper going on that actually when the word became flesh, the curtain's starting to be opened a little bit wider for us to look in. I want to tell you the phrase that I want you emblazoned onto every single heart, every single soul this morning, including mine, is this. He came out so that we could come in. He came out so that we could come in. The author John starts ramping things up in this, this story because in John chapter 6, where the first time Jesus, the first self-disclosure of who Jesus is, many statements have been said about Jesus up to this point, but the first time that Jesus speaks about himself is in John chapter 6 when it's the first I am statement. And Jesus significantly says this, I am the bread of life. Let me have a look there. Ah. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The next thing he says in John chapter 8 is this. He says, the second thing he says about himself is, I am the light of the world. Boom. And in John chapter 8 verse 59, it's this end of this, uh, this interchange between him and the Pharisees who've dragged in a woman who was completely on the outs, a woman who's caught in adultery, and they've dragged him, her in to Jesus and says, what the, the law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? trying to get Jesus in a bind. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey guys, I was before Moses. He says, actually this, he says this way, he says, before Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. In a sense, he's saying, I am the very essence. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the inside that you've all been longing for and looking for. And it says this in John chapter 8, verse 59, at these words, he left the temple. He came out so that we could come in. He came out so that we could come in. You see, we keep going. John chapter 14, Jesus says these words that have become so colloquially used in Christendom. They're a nice thing at the end of a sermon. They look good on a coffee cup mug. Even better on the back of a taxi and as you're driving, you see the scripture there. Oh, it makes sense. Jesus said this about himself. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Amen. Sounds good. But when we understand a little deeper, it's got much more depth than we first imagined. You see, because according to Jewish tradition, that gate is called the way. That gate, that door, is called the truth. And that veil that keeps the holy place from the holy of holies is called the life. So when Jesus says to a Jewish audience who've known those things have separated them and kept them on the outside looking in, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes in to the Father except through me. Something bigger is on the bubble here. And I want to say whether you've lost your way, whether you've compromised what you believe, maybe you felt so on the outside of life, looking in, longing, how do I get in? Do I try harder? Do I repent more? Do I do more? Do I beat myself more? What do I need? How lower do I need to go? No, you just have to look to Him because He came out so that we could come in. You see, I know some of you are still looking at me skeptically. All right, I'll prove it. A week ago, we celebrated Palm Sunday where Jesus fulfilled prophetic declarations by Zechariah, who said, your king will come to you riding on a donkey. 
On Palm Sunday, Jesus as the king, his rightful uh, description of who he is, his rightful title, sat on a donkey and rode into Jerusalem to fulfill prophecy. But it was in direct contrast to the religious system and even the political system of the day where we know to get to the king, you have to to come bowing and scraping. He's not moving an, an iota for you. You have to go through all the rigmarole, talk to the right people to get to the king. Jesus again says, I'm coming out to you. See, your king comes to you. So the king comes into Jerusalem. But watch this. He then, the very next thing that he does in the sequence of events is he takes off his kingly robes and puts on his high priestly garment. And he goes and has a meal with his disciples and breaks bread and drinks wine. Only what the high priest could have done. He does that, breaks the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But the very next thing he does is take off the high priestly garment and puts on the servant garment and says, bring me the water. Bring me the water. And he starts to wash their feet. And they say, no, 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 you can't do this. You're the king. You, you're the high priest. You're the one. No, but you can't. He goes, no, no, no. I must do this to you. If I don't do this to you, you can have no part of me. He starts to wash them, wash them clean. And the very next thing he does is takes off the servant garment, takes on the nature of a sacrifice. And he lies down willingly on the altar. He himself lies down perfect, spotless, blameless, without sin, without fault. He lies down and unlike those priests who had to do it once every year and again and again and never sit down because their work is never finished. This lamb, we told, lay down on the altar, the perfect sacrifice and died once and for all. Dying for us to bring us to God. Perfect and complete. And this is where it gets even huger, bigger. I want to tell you right now that he died on the cross for every sin, for every stain, for every shame. There is not one place, there's no one depth that you think that he, his grace cannot reach because he came out to bring you in. And the Bible tells us that he, as he did this, this is where he died. It says this in the book of Hebrews 13. It says this, it says, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate, outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Jesus died on Golgotha, outside the gate, the place that was the furthest away from the religious hub, the place where they felt they would meet God, the place that there was all this process all the way in. He said, no, I'm going all the way out to the outside place, and I'm going to die there, where no religious elite would ever step forth, that people would hold their kids away from. No, just don't go to that place. So maybe there's that place in your life. You say, just don't go there, Gabe. That, that hurt, that shame, that embarrassment, that divorce, that betrayal, that anger, that deleted internet history that nobody knows about, that relationship that nobody knows about, that text that nobody knows about, that shame that Nobody knows about that thing that's outside of God's favor that I want to leave out there. He says, I'm coming out to bring that in. He died outside the camp. This is huge for you and I. And when he died, I, I love it, as he died on the cross, right now at that moment, the religious ceremonies of the day of Passover was taking place at the exact same time. And they did not know what was going on outside the camp. At that very moment, a high priest was walking in sacrificing the animal, washing his hands, walking through, doing the process of what process that if God would be pleased with the people and the people on the outside looking in and then driving the scapegoat out the eastern gate, driving it out. And little did they know that Jesus was hanging on the cross. And I promise you, a, a, a lamb, the scapegoat for the people, would have run past him. And Jesus would have looked at that measly, puny sacrifice that only a religion can give. And they, they did not know that the lamb of God, who was being slain for the sins of the world, and that's the thing. Too often we get obsessed and we think religion's the answer. We think a little bit more, but I want to tell you, religion is blind. 
It is pitiful. It is nude. It has no power in itself unless we see him, the one who came out to bring us in. You can't wash your hands enough. You can't repent enough. You can't dig deep enough. You have to see the one who came out to bring us in. And this is huge for me because as he died, Scripture tells us that the veil, Scripture and history tells us the veil in the temple, as Jesus died, the veil that separated man from God, kept those on the outs, outs, separated them. That veil was torn from top to bottom. <laughs> Symbolizing the way is open. And I, I like to imagine what sort of happened as a, maybe the band can help me a little bit because we've got to get a little bit dramatic. I'm a redhead after all. But my imagination goes wild when I start to think about that day that in the physical that happened and people saw it and they trying to make sense of it. Who is this man? And, and the veil being torn, trying to make sense of what was going on. But in the spiritual, I can imagine Satan as legion of demons started to cheer. When Jesus said, it is finished. They were like, yes, the nail is on the coffin. Humanity is done. What we started in the garden, we finish now in the rubbish dump of history. He or his body will be thrown there and so long are humanity's hope for any salvation. They have crucified their Savior. They once took the fruit and now they refuse to walk back into the way of holiness, way of life, way of purity, way of joy, pleasure, design, paradise. They refuse to walk back into it. We've done it. High fives all around. Crank up the Lady Gaga. Woo! And they are pumped. They're ready to go. But Satan has an uneasy feeling in the stomach. And the guys are going, but he says, guys, I just need need to check something quickly. Because he's been watching us. He's seen all the prophecies. Jesus fulfilling them. He starts to get a bit nervous. So he goes and gets the phone. He says, I just need to check about this thing. So he gets the phone. He dials 666. Phone's death. He says, how's it death? It's Satan, yeah. Yeah, Satan. Yep. Death goes, oh, Satan, my trauma. (laughs) Lovely to hear from you. Thanks for the card. Been having a great time. Appreciate it. Thank you for the Jack Daniels you sent down. Awesome. Loving it. Great. Pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. But I, you know, I just want to get to business death. I don't want to bother you. I know it's a long weekend. Friday, you know, it's taking off. But uh, I just want to make sure that there's a body that died recently. Jesus of Nazareth. Can you just check that he arrived and that he read? It's death. Like, oh, strange request. Okay, I'll do that. Comes back. Yep. Satan, I read the, I read the toe tag. Jesus of Nazareth died at 3 p.m. Yeah, he's dead. Dead as a doorknob. It's all good. I've got this, buddy. Don't remember, I'm a professional. I'm a professional. What's, what's the name on my door? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Death. I'm him. Yeah, cool. Satan's like, yeah, cool, cool, thanks. Satan, enjoy your long weekend. Shot, man. Cheers. Satan goes, guys, it's okay. Puts the bl- I'm on a highway to hell. Ah! Guys, enjoys the party. Next morning, he wakes up with a heck of a hangover. But that nervousness in his stomach hasn't gone. He goes, I need to check this up. I know death's not going to like this. Six, six. Hey, death, it's me. Me again. How's it? Just checking. You've been blue ticking me a bit. Just uh, Death's like, Satan, buddy, leave me alone, bro. I've got this. That, oh, Jesus is dead. Hasn't moved. Nothing. Nothing. Dead, dead. Tick, no, nothing. Still there. Leave me alone, buddy. I've got this. I'm a professional. So he's like, sorry, man. I know. I'm overthinking this. Cool. Thanks, man. Cheers. Sunday comes. Death phones Satan. Satan? Yes, death. Out with it. Out with it. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just how's the, how's the weekend? How's the family, kids? Oh, yeah, cool, 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 cool. Uh, Satan, yes, death. Tell me what it is. It says, uh, that, that guy, Jesus. Yes? What? What's happened? It says, well, 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 he, he sat bolt right upright this morning and uh, he's looking at me with a look I've never seen before. And Satan started to say, death? You hold him. Death, you do not let him go. Death, that body must not get up from that place. Death, 
You do not let him go. You hold him there. You hold him there. But we know death could not hold him down. And I love this. That's in my, that's my headspace in the spiritual, but in the physical. We read in John 20 what happened. It says early on a Sunday morning, early on a Sunday morning as a new day dawned, a woman named Mary, a woman who's past up this point has probably been defined as sinful, as excluded, as on the outs on every single shape and form. But it's Mary who approaches a tomb and she gets there coming to look for a body to mourn the death of her Savior. The way out of this place, the way out of it was maybe Jesus, but Jesus died. She comes to mourn there. But what she finds at the garden tomb that morning is that the stone is no longer in place. It's rolled away. It's rolled away. And what she finds there is two angels standing, presiding over the tomb. Just like in Genesis chapter 3 where there's two angels to block the way. Just like the Ark of the Covenant had two angels presiding over an empty space to see if the sacrifice would be worthy. We get to John 20, there's two angels, but this time they've got a different look on their face. And she said, where's my Lord? He says, why look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. This is the good news of the gospel. And here's the kicker for yesterday. The stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out. As if the king of glory would be impeded by a measly rock. A geological structure would stop the king of glory who once said, Satan, you have bruised my heel, now I've crushed your skull. That king of glory did not need a rock to be moved for him to come out. No, the stone was moved so not just to let him out, but to let us in. See, he is not here. He is alive. And I tell you again, he came out so that we could come in. He came out so that we could come in. Let's stand to our feet, Life Changes Church. I want to tell you today, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is here. And this whole, whole thing is to tell you, Jesus reverses the curse. He reverses what, where you think you've gone too far. He says, my grace goes further still. He says, I'll reverse every curse. I'll reverse every shame. I'll reverse every failure. I'll reverse every moment where you've fallen short because I came out so that you could come in. I came out so that you could come in and encounter my life. So I want to tell you today that you can't outrun His grace. You can't outsin His grace. You can't outdo His grace. It finds you every time. I said one last time. He came out so that we could come yeah. in. Can we close our eyes in this place today? I'm really believing that the Spirit of the living God wants to bring sons and daughters home. People who've run far, run far, run long, hearts are heavy and felt like I'm on the out. And you say, but yeah, Gabe, maybe it's a long journey home. I want to tell you, it's not a long journey. It's one moment trusting in Him. He says, come on home. I want to count to three and on three, I'm going to ask you to lift your hand. And that hand is symbolic of your heart saying, Jesus, you came out to bring me in. I'm coming in. And if you want to lift your hand, I tell you, the Spirit of the living God will fill you like you've never been filled before. He will change your life forever. Yeah. And no longer will you be on the outs looking in. You'll have a new vantage point perspective on life. So I want to count to three and ask you, stir up your hearts in this moment to respond. Stir your hearts up to respond to Him right now. The Father is seeking sons and daughters to come home. One, the Father is running towards you to bring you home. Two, and He's ready to celebrate. Three, if that's you, lift your hand right now. Lift your hand. Thank you, Jesus, for sons and daughters who are coming home. 
Coming home to the Father. Coming home not to religion, not to an organization, not to trying harder, but to their Father who's opened the way, who's opened the truth, opened the life and says, I come out so you can come in. I thank you, Jesus, for Jesus in our hearts. Thank you, God, in every single hand raised. Set them free. Bring them home. Can we lift our hands together all together last one last time together? I really believe the Spirit of the living God wants to fall on us as a church. In my life, in your life, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. So Father, I pray for your sons and daughters, for your church, your people, the people who you have ransomed for God. I thank you, Father God, this morning you're going to pour out your life like never before. I thank you, Father, you're going to pour out your life like never before. And I declare again that you turn graves into gardens. I declare that you turn shame into glory. You turn seas into highway. You turn bankruptcy into fullness. You turn relational discord into healing. You turn death into life. As sons and daughters, you say, let my people go so they may worship me. So they may worship me. Let's worship the King of glory, the Lamb that was slain, who is now the Lion of the tribe of Judah.